So welcome everyone to the podcast. This is exciting. I'm here with Roz Shafran and Adam Radomski, and we're talking about the BABCP 2022 conference that's happening in London in July. I'm sure everybody listening to this knows who Roz and Adam are, but just in case you don't, Professor Roz Shafran, Chair in Translational Psychology at the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health in London, and Professor Adam Radomski, Professor of Psychology at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. A very warm welcome to the podcast, both of you. Um, Roz, let's ask you first of all, how do you guys know each other? Tell us a bit about the story of, yeah, how you met. So we've known each other for about 30 years and I was doing a postdoc uh, research post at the University of British Columbia under Jack Brackman and in the lab was Adam, who was a research assistant, I think, at the time before you became Jack's graduate student. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, it was about 30 years ago and I was not yet a graduate student um, and Roz arrived. I'd heard a lot about Roz uh, before she got there and was surprised at how tall she was the first time that I met her, uh, given what we had been told. That was an ongoing joke. Um, at the beginning, I think Roz and I were busy doing what we were each very interested in. Um, and then over the years, I think we found that not only did we fall into very similar ways of thinking about things, we also found that we are great pals um, and that it was just so much fun to work together on lots of different things. So I think over the years we've gone on to maintain different interests, um, but have a lot of shared interests as well that, that bring us together uh, often, not often enough, but often. And tell me a bit, both of you, about the kind of BABCP community and the group of people that you work with through that. Is that an important kind of network and community for you both? The BABCP is particularly special to me and very close to my heart. So I organised my first symposium um, when I was a graduate student and I thought the opportunity to meet the leaders in the field was phenomenal from a scientific perspective, but equally it was social side. It was it is still for me the friendliest conference you could ever go to. I, you know, served on the scientific committee, was co-chair of the scientific committee because it was enjoyment and science in such a unique way, and such a lot of thought goes into the social side and the discos and the uh, the informal networking. And no offence to the North Americans, but if you've ever been to a North American conference, it's very different. This is very personal. Um, in it, it's it's scientifically cutting edge, but it's also socially absolutely brilliant. And I have to agree with that. I mean, I think you know, coming for, coming from North America, you know, Canada. Well, my first BA BCP conference was, gosh, probably also about 25, 30 years ago. And have and there was no Canadian CBT conference at the time. There was an American one, uh, which had a lot of science, but had a very different feel. And when I first came to the BA BCP. Not only was it just such a treat to be at a conference with the world's leading CBT experts, both in terms of science and practice, um, but there was a playfulness um, that we just didn't have on this side of the pond. Um, that there, there were tea breaks and there were, you know, there was beer and drinks and lots of fun things, and it was very easy to meet people and socialize, um, which was fun and brought a personal piece, but also made the science come alive in a way that I don't think it always does at other conferences. And I guess people are chomping at the bit, aren't they, after a year or two 
away from those sorts of face-to-face events. There was actually a face-to-face BABCP event last year in between the kind of lockdowns. Um, But I guess a lot of researchers and scientists and people who work in mental health science haven't had this opportunity to kind of get together. What's important from your perspective about the kind of face-to-face gathering versus the online stuff we've been doing for the last couple of years? I met a co-author of a book I've been writing over lockdown for the first time in person. So we'd had an awful lot of Zoom contact, knew her very well. But what really struck me was her warmth and her gentleness. And I think that because in a Zoom meeting, it's focused. There's generally, you know, what you're there to do. That sort of incidental conversation and the non-verbals were harder. And I was really struck by how I knew her in one level and didn't know her on another. So I think that for me, the in-person just has has that warmth and uh, communication in a way that's quite difficult to, to replicate over Zoom. Yeah, and I think on top of that, there are things... Zoom has been such an amazing resource um, during this time. It's actually quite remarkable how many things can be made better by meeting in online format. But there is so much that you lose that, you know, if if you're at a a talk or symposium or workshop or something and you get really excited about something, you know, you step out and you can continue that conversation with someone in a way that doesn't happen online. Um, you, You can, you know, have a cup of tea or have lunch and be chatting and, you know, have that spill over and, you know, sorry to whoever's talk I'm going to miss because I get involved in some exciting chat over lunch. Um, but that, I think those opportunities aren't there in digital format. Um, so it'd be nice to see people. I mean, I think that's a big plus. It'd be nice to be able to see people and, you know, wave or give hugs or whatever it is that people are, are, are comfortable doing. Um, but I think the opportunities to grab some extra time and to forge those extra connections Uh, is something a lot of us have been missing. So let's talk about the science. Adam, do you want to go first? Your talk at the conference in July is called Making CBT OCD Better. One experiment, one belief, one step at a time. Tell us what you're going to be talking about and why people should come along and listen. One of the great things about cognitive behavior therapy, one of the things that I find most exciting about it is not just that it works. I mean, that I think is is what appeals to a lot of people, but that as Paul Sokovskis and other people have said that it was designed at the very beginning to change over time, to change with science. And I think one of the weaknesses in our field is that a lot of practitioners out there, a lot of therapists, um, are busy, they're stressed, um, and it's not easy for them to get updates on what those changes are. Some of the changes are uh, in terms of things to focus on. Some of the changes are in terms of how you might focus on those things. Uh, And so my uh, keynote uh, will focus on some of the work that I've had the great privilege of doing, much of it with Jack Rackman, some of it with Roz, um, some of it with other people, lots of fantastic students over the years, to really look at what was the best practice approach to treating obsessive compulsive disorder? Where have we missed opportunities to make that better? And, and what can science in the laboratory do to improve the way that we approach it, the way that we, the things that we ask about, the things that we do and the things that we say? And there are two sort of topics, I think, 
talk's not finished yet, but two topics I think that I'll be focusing on. One is the piece of work that I was doing when I met Roz, um, having to do with memory and obsessive compulsive disorder and what we've learned over the years about memory and doubt and confidence. Um, and in fact, I'm doing a workshop on, on doubt, not just in OCD, but in association with other problems. Um, and how laboratory science has enabled us to conceptualize, assess, and treat doubt more powerfully, better. Um, and then the talk's gonna end with something that I'm interested in right now, which is, so you know, the, the first bit is gonna be about beliefs about memory and how that interest emerged and what we learned about it. And, and the second domain is beliefs about losing control, which is a much newer topic for me. Um, but I think it's one that actually has a lot more promise because it spreads beyond just doubt and OCD across a range of uh, mental health problems where people might either want to be in control or want to control certain things or might be terrified about what would happen if they lost control uh, over different domains. And so for me, this keynote is an interesting combination of the end of one story and the beginning of another. So I think one of the main reasons to go to Adam's talk, apart from the fact that it will be scientifically at the cutting edge, is it will be entertaining and engaging and interesting. And I think that actually we're very used to, to um, multitasking now and being distracted. And I think it's difficult to engage people, but I would absolutely say go to Adam's talk if you want to be entertained as well as educated. And when you're talking about the kind of cutting edge of science and thinking about how, you know, these interventions need to evolve to, to work better for particular groups. I'm really interested in what you think about what currently happens, the CBT that is delivered for people with OCD currently in services in Canada or the UK or elsewhere. How far away do you think that is from this kind of cutting edge science? And what's the translation process needed to actually change things? Gosh, that's a big question. I think in some cases, what happens in clinics is pretty close to where we're at because some clinicians are amazingly smart and perspective and more importantly, so are their patients, clients, service users, very smart and perceptive about their problems. They know how to describe them and a good clinician can pick up on those um, and think critically and use the theory that we've got um, and implement a good intervention. I think unfortunately in lots of parts of the world, either because some training is older or because sometimes therapists have trouble understanding what the important bits and pieces are that they're hearing, um, they revert to established protocols. Now they're pretty good. Uh, they tend to be fairly exposure-based. That's very effective. Um, can, can be difficult for some patients and for others it can sort of miss the heart of what's going on. Uh, and so, I think the process by which we help people sort of update their skills and update their knowledge is in some ways a very slow one because you have to do the research to understand, um, A, is there a different way of understanding the problem? Is there a different thing to focus on? B, how does that thing work? And so in my talk, I'll be focusing on, on experiments, psychological experiments done in the laboratory, which are sort of a unique methodological approach um, that I think can be quite powerful. And if you can find out a mechanism, a psychological mechanism, that if you manipulate it in the lab, it produces changes in symptoms in the lab, then that gives you a nugget. 
that you can then take to the clinic and study it there? Can that mechanism be used therapeutically? If so, then that leads to another set of studies involving examining that treatment intervention in smaller trials and then in larger trials. And if that has promise, then you get to sort of recommend it as something that everybody should be doing uh, under the right circumstances. So unfortunately, the process can be quite slow, which is one of the great reasons why a conference like the BABCP gives people a chance to hear about what's going on at all different points in that process um, so that they can start listening in different ways and trying things in the clinic in different ways. And what's your thought, Roz, in terms of the barriers to implementing this science and, and the yeah the facilitators to getting it in there more quickly? Yeah, and I agree with Adam that it, it's, it's a really difficult and big question, but I think one of the solutions is actually instead of evidence-based practice to have practice-based evidence. And so when Adam was telling the story of the evolution of his work and his focus on memory and checking, a very clear memory comes back to me of in... At the time that we were developing all of this and Adam was developing his work, there was a view that people with OCD had a memory deficit. So people were checking because there was something wrong with, with their brains. They, they couldn't remember. And I remember Jack very clearly going, well, that's obviously nonsense. Any clinician who's ever had a patient with a contamination fear will be able to tell you that the patient will say, 12 years ago, I was in this situation and this touched me and then that touched me. They can recall with unbelievable precision the exact processes that happened for, for contamination. So he knew from his clinical work and from the patients, there was no memory deficit in, you know, in that sense. And so one of the experiments he did, and this is my favorite, I know I talk about it a lot, is basically Adam sneezed on a variety of objects and then did a memory test. And surprise, surprise, people with OCD and contamination fears were hugely better than other people because it was meaningful to them because it had significance to them and it was important. So I think that really, in OCD in particular, I think that, that the gap is probably narrowest in some ways, because the interventions and the science have, have really been grown up hand in hand because there's been such a strong emphasis on the clinical phenomenon and that's where you start rather than from, you know, from the theory. How has life for people with OCD changed with the pandemic? We hear all these newspaper reports about increased incidents and prevalence what's your kind of clinical reflection on all of that anecdotally because i don't have access to um good numbers on what's happened in the in the past couple of years anecdotally i think some people well first of all i think everybody's been stressed by what's going on whether you have ocd or not i think it's touched us all whether it's something you're worried about or not i think it's touched us all because even the people who are not worried about it are are, are concerned about the fact that the rest of us are um i think within ocd some people have told me, well, that makes no difference to me. Um, I was never concerned about, I mean, I'm stressed about it, but really my concern is about X and it, maybe it's the horrible thoughts they're having that have nothing to do with the contamination concerns that are, are presented by the pandemic. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of people with OCD for whom this has been a perfect storm. People who were, were already very worried about the safety and well-being of others or of themselves who've been um, 
told for years to wash less. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all told to wash more um, and got very confused and concerned about that. We're terrified um, in some cases of catching COVID, but I think in OCD, in more cases, because of the responsibility that we see in OCD, the inflated responsibility that we see, they're terrified of making somebody else sick um, and remain that way today, even when, even when people are vaccinated, that those concerns are sky high. So I think there's a real range of ways that the pandemic has impacted people with OCD. On the whole, it certainly hasn't made it easier for anyone, but there are some people for whom it's been an especially difficult challenge. So let's move on and talk about Ros's talk. Uh, too good for your own good? Advances in the understanding and treatment of clinical perfectionism. Tell us about this, Ros. So because I had a background in obsessive compulsive disorder, and then I also worked in eating disorders for a long time, you really can't avoid perfectionism. It really seemed to be at the intersection. So in OCD, there's a form of OCD in which it's not just, it, it, it's, it's just not right. Just not right. And um, that was very obvious. And in anorexia nervosa in particular, it was, this is the right way to be. And that sort of value system um, associated with perfectionism has always fascinated me. And then the differences between the motivation, so some people with OCD being motivated to be perfect and to have perfectionism because they're frightened of making mistakes, whereas other people um, with it just being, well, you should always strive to do your best. That that's a, a moral, has a moral element. So perfectionism for me is really very, very interesting, fascinating, lots of different layers. In the way that Adam's become interested in control, which is across the different disorders. Perfectionism is not a diagnostic category. Always interested in how it applies more broadly. And I think sometimes researchers, going back to your question of why is there this sort of gap between research and practice sometimes, it's sometimes because researchers just are not researching the right stuff. They're not researching the things that are really relevant to people. And I think with perfectionism, it's something that that people really can relate to. It's it's good and it's, and it's bad, but this idea that you're striving for something that's actually detrimental to you um, it, it is, is what's interesting to me. And actually, the, the topic, the phrase, too good for your own good, came from Jack Brackman when we were discussing it. He goes, too good for your own good. So it's a little tribute, to, a little personal tribute to him in the title there. Tell us a bit more about perfectionism as a thing, because I think I'm really interested in that um, and how it moves from being potentially a positive characteristic or trait to something which is clinically problematic? There's sort of healthy perfectionism in which um, it works to motivate people, um, it can help with achievement, um, lots of positive rewards. And then there's the unhealthy perfectionism or dysfunctional perfectionism where it's associated with mental health problems, interferes with functioning. And it isn't a matter of the standard. I think that's where people really make make the biggest sort of assumption that, well, it, it just must be what you're striving for, that you're striving for something that's too much. But actually, the standard isn't where the the, the dysfunction is and the unhealthiness is. I think it, it's a combination of things. It's the, it's the reaction to failing to meet those standards that's the problem. So a bit of the old CBT model about the interpretation and the appraisal being at the heart of it in the CBT model of perfectionism. But also the domain in which the perfectionism is expressed is, is very important too. So if you are a perfectionist in the domain of 
weight loss, it's inherently more unhealthy and has other consequences than if the uh, domain was in something like work. Not to say that it can't be detrimental and dysfunctional, but the, but the domain in which the perfectionism is expressed is important, and the reaction to um, the perceived failure to meet your standards is important too. And tell us about how it emerges. I'm thinking about kind of prevention and early intervention in young people. If you've got a child, I'm, I'm, I have a child who is very, very good at writing, who loves to write really clearly, and she gets almost no writing done in class because it has to be absolutely perfect. So there's this kind of balance between perfect writing and actually writing enough words to get a mark for what you're doing. Um, I'm, I'm interested in how these kind of traits develop over time and our sense of intervening early to help people. So perfectionism is much newer as a research area, but certainly within a cognitive behavioural framework. It's always been seen within the personality domain of they're just perfectionists. They were always perfectionists. They're just like that um, versus the sort of more work that we do which is trying to think about sort of maintaining processes because if you think about maintaining processes there's the opportunity to intervene early I wish I had a really simple answer for you Andre but but I don't um there's all sorts of different factors that come in so I'm not sure if you're a perfectionist or not Andre oh yeah oh well (laughs) yeah a little bit of genetics um, would be in there, a little bit of the environment, a little bit of um, reaction to peers. To, all, they're, they're all different sorts of things that come into play. But you can see how, if you take your daughter's example, that if you had the right teacher and environment that goes, you know what, we've got a 10-minute lesson here, and I just want you to write anything that comes down to your mind and just write it and get it on there. And then she does that, and what happens then is she gets a smiley face sticker, for example. That's brilliant. And she's rewarded from having that experience of it's okay just as it comes and you can edit it later. Versus a teacher that goes, well, haven't written very much, have you? And, and, and you know, not makes it a, a stressful environment where actually she's even more paralyzed and even more frozen because now the stakes are higher. She's been told she's got to write something she doesn't know what to write. It's not going to be right. She, she, she's, she's flummoxed and at a loss. And, and you can just see how you can get into that spiral in which you get very anxious and you become paralysed and you procrastinate and you avoid. Can I just say that I love hearing Ros talk about perfectionism and lots of different things. But one of the reasons why you must go to her talk is that before Ros turned her very sharp eyes to perfectionism, it was, as she just said, very much viewed as a trait. There were lots of psychometric studies. There were actually probably two. I mean, she knows the area better than me, but probably two groups, one in the States and one in Canada, who had developed questionnaires, and they were debating about factor structures underlying perfectionism. And that's interesting from an academic perspective, perhaps. But what Roz has done, which I think is brilliant, is she's taken it and turned it into a living, breathing clinical construct. She understands how it touches people's lives. She can uh, bring it to life. But I think more importantly, she's got a really fantastic sense of how to make use of some of that information and a lot more information that she and others have collected over the years to turn that into clinical intervention strategies, ways of understanding the concerns that different patients bring to the clinic um, and I, I think it's, it's that kind of science which really helps us to advance the ways that we help people. Um, and so I'm looking forward to it. 
And, and if Adam was in the same room as me, this is a different stream Zoom, I would give you the biggest hug, transfer the money, <laughs> slip me the flower. Thank you, Adam. That's very kind of you. So let's let's talk a bit more about this because we're talking about traits. We're talking about kind of control, doubt, perfectionism. And I'm interested in what you think about how the system that we have to fund research and to do research is, you know, broken because a lot of it is based on kind of intervention studies or, you know, particular kind of clinical populations. So just your general reflections on, you know, kind of transdiagnostic approaches and also the interest that we started to see from funders in these kind of active ingredients sorts of approaches like the Wellcome Trust of funding at the moment where we're looking at, you know, um, emotion regulation or exercise or loneliness, not the actual specific intervention, but the cross-cutting components. How do you think the mental health science community needs to evolve so that we're actually studying the right things? I, I think funding systems for academic research are, are broken in general because, um, first of all, they tend to be quite biased towards uh, senior researchers. They don't take into account issues of uh, diversity. There are all kinds of ways that just, just from those perspectives, the system could be improved. But I, I think within mental health, there's been an over-focus for years on either the biology um, or on, and not that the biology is irrelevant, but it's certainly not the only factor that we should pay attention to, or on you know, treatments for specific disorders. Now there's value in that research, um, but there's value in all research. And I think um, finding ways to prioritize novel studies of clinically relevant phenomena um, can actually make a huge contribution and will guide the work that people do. In, in this part of the world, we see a lot of research on how to do more exposure for X, how to do exposure better for X or for Y or for Z. And okay, that, that might be helpful, um, but it seems to lack an innovation piece that I think can bring a lot to the table both for whatever the topic of the innovation might be, but also then how can you take that innovation and apply it more broadly? Um, I think we are missing something there in terms of novelty, creativity, and clinical resonance. It's, it's very difficult to break into the funding system. And I think it's very difficult for a clinician who wants to do research. So a lot of people tending to the ABCP will be clin clinicians who really want to do research in their practice. They want, but, but actually you're very busy. You don't have time to do that. So where do you get why isn't there a network that you can call on to say, look, I'm collecting this data, I'm doing my routine outcome monitoring because that's what the research has told me that I should do, but how do I use it? How do I interpret it? Do I, how do I get the software in my own clinical practice to actually show the graphs and do what you're supposed to do? So I think there are lots of ways in which um, we could really be, be helping research and clinical and the clinical worlds come together and that needs some creative thinking what's happening now give me some practice-based evidence innovation examples then that we can sort of cite as this is the way to do it so i'm working with children with long-term conditions and mental health problems and they get overlooked very difficult to access treatments and really what we did was we put a drop-in center in the reception area of the hospital for people to drop in and self-refer and have access to some of the low intensity treatments and it, it was modular so it wasn't um 
it, it was based on, on, a, on, on the match protocol, so the anxiety, depression, behavioral problems. And what really comes from that is it impacts parents positively and siblings positively. But actually, an innovation is, is listening to patients, really, and saying, we don't, we don't necessarily need what's being offered in terms of really, really long waiting lists and a really full course of treatment. And that's, that, I'm sure that there'll be PWPs listening to this who are going, yes, 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 we know it. CWPs listening to this. But actually, in, it needs to translate into, in, in, into making a difference to people's lives where they can self-refer and, and for the system to be set up to meet the needs when, when especially with children, young people, development is so important, they're not in school, can't access help. Those are all sorts of things in which I think um, we need to be, be really actively trying to, to listen and do, do what's best in a timely way. Mm -hmm.